it is such a privilege to be with you again this morning and to share with you what I believe the Lord has laid on my heart concerning humility. Um, I would like us to take a look at the title slide, um, which really speaks to the gist of the, the message. Um, while while um, that is being prepared, I want us to focus on the title of the message this morning, humility. Humility is a word that we've probably been hearing since we were in Sunday school. Even if we didn't go to Sunday school, it's, it's a word that we've been hearing perhaps all our lives. But I want us to delve into this subject of humility this morning. And the title slide that you're seeing shows humility with the T being the cross with Jesus nailed on the cross. That was intentional because I want us to look this morning at the life of Jesus and the lessons to be learned from the life of Jesus. So this is part one of a two-part message. Thank you, Sister Tashina. And the, part, the title of part one, if I were to give it a title, is Lessons from Jesus's Humility. And we're going to look at, I repeat that, Lessons from Jesus's Humility. And we're gonna look at the life of Jesus and the role humility played in his life. But first, let us have a look at what the Bible says about humility. Um, and we're gonna look at the definition of humility in the, in the context of the scriptures. Um, we're gonna look at Jesus's life of humility. We're gonna look at what Jesus's life of humility accomplished and to summarize the message, it's gonna, I'm gonna focus on four things. One, Jesus's life of humility released resurrection power. Jesus's life of humility fulfilled God's purpose. Jesus's life of humility teaches us to trust God's promise. And Jesus's life of humility reinforces our position in God. Um, so, definition of humility. Colossians 3 verse 12 says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, we will close ourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Micah 6 8 says, the Lord requires of me that I act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly before him. Philippians 2 3 I will do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, I will value others above myself, not looking to my own interests, but to the interests of others. Luke eleven fourteen. for if I exalt myself, I will be humbled. But if I humble myself, I will be exalted. All these scriptures are giving us the requirements as Christians, that it's simply saying that we need to be humble. But what is humility? Proverbs 22, 4 says, humility is the fear of the Lord. Simple as that, humility is the fear of the Lord. Its wages are riches and honor and life. Humility is the fear of the Lord its wages are riches and honor and life. So when we strip away everything, humility boils down to the fear of God. 
But to better understand what humility is, I want us to look at the opposite of humility. And the opposite of humility we know is pride, often expressed as proud or prideful, being prideful. But what I found interesting as I was preparing this message is that the English language is limited in its ability to distinguish between good pride and sinful pride, or what, what otherwise is called ungodly pride. But for the purpose of this message, I will, I will attempt to make a distinction by using some examples. So let us say, for example, your child or grandchild, niece, nephew, accomplishes something. It is okay to be proud of them. It is okay to be proud of their accomplishments. If you've worked hard and by God's grace, you too have achieved something. It is okay to be proud of yourself and it is okay for others to be proud of you. The difficulty for many of us as Christians is that we feel a sense of um, guilt when we say we're proud of something or we feel pride about something. There's a difference between that kind of pride that I just spoke about and being prideful. Scriptures like Proverbs 16, 5 comes to mind. Everyone proud in his heart, sorry, everyone proud, yes, in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall, a scripture we perhaps all grew up hearing. And so, again, we struggle with being proud of something or telling somebody that we're proud of them. And expressing that kind of pride. That kind of pride, that definition is to feel a deep sense of satisfaction or pleasure from an accomplishment or in someone. And there is nothing ungodly, as I said, about that kind of pride. Matthew 3 verse 17 says, after Jesus was baptized by John, the Holy Spirit came, up, came upon him. God said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then we hear God saying that again at the transfiguration of Jesus in Matthew 17, verse five. God in these scriptures was expressing how proud he was of his son, Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 7, verse four, Paul in speaking to the Corinthians said, great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I'm filled with comfort. I'm exceedingly joyful in all our tribulations. And the Christian Standard Bible version says, Paul said, I have great pride in you. So again, Paul was expressing his pride and joy in that moment. Sinful pride, however, is when one is prideful. And prideful in Middle English is the word creed, P-R-E, I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly, P-R-E-D-E. And that comes from the Old English, prito, P-R-Y-T-O, which means unreasonable self-esteem, haughtiness, overbearing treatment of others, pomp, and the love of display. So to use the example that I cited earlier about accomplishments, the difference between being proud and being prideful is when you allow those accomplishments or your possessions to cause you to develop a sense of superiority, causes you to become arrogant, disrespectful, or discriminatory. And we see a good example of this in Daniel 30, where King Nebuchadnezzar says, 
is this not Babylon the Great that I have built to be a royal residence by my vast power and for my majestic glory? And we see in that scripture before Nebuchadnezzar even finished speaking, the Lord spoke, God spoke and rebuked him. And he banished him to live like wild animals until he acknowledged God is ruler over all human kingdoms and he gives them to anyone that he wants. Nebuchadnezzar was prideful. So as I share in this message, I will interchange the use of the word prideful and sinful pride to be the opposite of humility. And we're going to look at different types of, of, of pride. Pedro Chong, G-E-C-H-E-U-N, identifies different types of pride. And I want to look at some of them this morning in, 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 um, in brief. He looks at self-exaltation. Self-exaltation is where we give credit to ourselves. And an example is boasting that your success is only as a result of your hard work and efforts. There is self-promotion where we invite credit from others. So instead of exalting yourself, you're now looking for somebody else to exalt you. There is self-justification expecting praise from God himself. And this is when we believe that we can earn God's reward or commendation through our actions. Number four, self-degradation. That is putting ourselves down. Number five, self-demotion. Self-demotion is where we compare ourselves to others, concluding that we're not as good as they are. And number six, self-sufficiency, where we depend on ourselves to meet our needs and not on God. So I'll run through them again. Self-exaltation, self-promotion, self-justification, self-degradation, self-demotion, and self-sufficiency. And we'll examine these in more detail in, in part two of this message. But understanding the definition of pride, I believe, is important in, in setting the context for this message. So with that foundation established, where do we turn to understand what humility is? And there is no better example of humility, my brothers and sisters, than Jesus Christ himself. The ultimate result of Jesus' humility was salvation. We would not have the benefit of salvation if Jesus was not humble. If Jesus did not walk a life of humility to lead him on that cross where he was crucified, a cruel death, we would not experience salvation today. On Easter Sunday, Reverend Heron looked at the building blocks of Jesus's life, suffering, death, and resurrection. And the resurrection power which is afforded to us through salvation came through the death of Jesus. I'm going to ask Sister Tamar to, to read the upcoming scripture, Philippians 2, 5 to 8. The death, the suffering, death and resurrection of Jesus could not have been accomplished if he was not humble. I want us to remember that this morning. Everything in Jesus's life mirrored humility and or sorry showed humility and that is what we are required to do to mirror humility so let us look at philippians 2 5 to 8 and this is reading from the niv version go ahead sister tamar 
It says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset. Oh, sorry. Let me move my screen. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Amen. Thank you. It was humility that led to Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus' suffering came as about as a result of his humility. Jesus' death came about as a result of his humility. And the resurrection power that we experience today has come about through Jesus' humility. So the first point I want to make to you today is humility releases power. Humility releases power. Had Jesus not humbled himself to the point of a cruel death on Calvary's cross, we would be doomed for hell. John 11, 25 to 26 says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. First Peter 1, 3 says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We recently celebrated Easter and every first Sunday we commemorate the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus through Holy Communion. The taking of communion is not a ritual, but it's recognizing and appropriating the power in, of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. It's the resurrection of Jesus could have only come through a crucifixion. The crucifixion of Jesus could only have come through Jesus's humility in being man, taking on the form of man, suffering as man while he was here on earth. And so our access to the resurrection power of Jesus came only through Jesus's humility. But where do we fall short? We want the power without the process. Remember the scripture earlier says that we should pattern the suffering of Jesus. But we want the power. We want to experience the resurrection power of Jesus without going through the same process that he went through. The process requires suffering. And the suffering requires humility. To experience power, we have to suffer. And to suffer, we have to be humble. Philippians 3.10 says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. Listen to what Paul says. Know the power of his resurrection, but it doesn't stop there. It says we must also participate in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. And how can that be achieved? That can only be achieved through humility. We pray for God to use us in his work. And we're always telling God that we're available. Lord, use me. I'm available. I'm a vessel. Fill me. We pray believing that the resurrection power is available to us when we pray. 
When we pray, we expect persons to be healed. When we, when we pray, we expect deliverance. We pray for God to intervene in our circumstances and we believe that he will. Why? Because of the resurrection power. Before Jesus ascended to heaven, he said he will send his Holy Spirit. And John 14, 16 references the Holy Spirit as an advocate. So when we pray, we pray for our advocate to fight on our behalf and we believe that he will. Kenneth Hagin in his message entitled Keys to Successful Prayer says that when we pray, we should also pray believing there is power in the preservation, sorry, power of preservation in the blood of Jesus. So we pray believing for healing, we pray believing for deliverance, we pray believing for all kinds of things, but we also pray believing for preservation. And, and what did he mean by this? In the Old Testament, we're familiar with the, the, the Passover scripture, where the Lord, where God said that if they apply, if the, these children apply the blood to their doorposts, that he would pass over. The blood of the lamb applied to the doorpost was a typology of the blood of Jesus. And when Jesus' blood is applied, it preserves. And so when we pray, we expect preservation. Heal, um, issues with sickness, whatever it is, we expect that preservation because of the blood of Jesus. Again, it was because Jesus humbled himself to condescend to man's level and live a life of humility that gives us access to this power. Power of his blood to save, power of his blood to heal, power of his blood to deliver, power of his blood to intervene, power of his blood to preserve. And you may be listening and asking, so what does all of this have to do with, with me and humility? to experience, and I'm gonna keep saying it, to experience the resurrection power of Christ, we need to walk in humility. But what do I mean? Let, let's be practical this morning. I called pastor yesterday to ask her to help me with structuring a part of this message. And I shared with her what it is I was gonna look at. I was gonna look at purpose, providence, promise, position, and power. And as soon as I said power, she said, why, why don't you start with power? And I said, no, 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 power, power has to be at the end. There's a reason why power is at the end. I dismissed her immediately. Because in my mind, I had structured the message and I knew where power was to go and that was it. It wasn't open to any suggestions. And we discussed the, the structure that I called her about and the conversation ended. At minutes to nine, as I was in, in the show this morning, your minutes to 10. I heard the Lord say to me, start with power. Power, remember I said power was supposed to be in part two of this message. Minutes to nine this morning, the Lord says, start with power. Immediately, the Lord revealed to me that my response to pastor was prideful. Why? Because I was putting my desire before God's purpose. I was not open to even considering what the, that the Lord was using her to speak to me about this message. I'm, I'm constantly saying, Lord, use me. Lord, I'm available. Lord, fill me. Lord, let there be power in my words. Let, let my words that I speak have impact. 
and, con and bring conviction by your Holy Spirit. Constantly saying that, yet, as recent as yesterday, I closed the door to hearing from the Lord because I was prideful. Then guess what happened as a result of that? Remember, Paul was supposed to be part two. I have not finished part two. I have not, I had not up to this morning even started writing on Paul. And so as a result of me being prideful, I now had to be between minutes to nine and shortly before I, I, I started speaking right on Paul. That is why my camera was off for so long. But the, this is the beauty of the power of the Holy Spirit that I speak about the resurrection power of Jesus. Because I repented, I called pastor. I didn't get her, but I sent her a message. And I said, I, I would prefer to speak to you, but I have to tell you this before I speak. Forgive me for being prideful. I had to humble myself, repent before God and ask her to forgive me for being prideful. But this is the beauty. This is the point I was going to make. This is the beauty of the resurrection power of Jesus that I talk about. Because I repented and because I humbled myself to ask her forgiveness, the Holy Spirit enabled me to reorder this message. And everything that I've shared with you so far on Paul was within the last probably hour and a half. That's not my doing. That is the power that I speak about. And all glory goes to God. I take no credit for it. But the ability to do that comes only through our humility. We're, we're constantly asking the Lord to show up and do things in our lives, but we're not living lives that are humble. We pray, we expect, we believe. I shared an example of what happened with me yesterday. What about you? How is it that you're being prideful that could be interfering with what the Lord wants to do in your life? How is it that your lack of humility is becoming or has become an obstruction to God working in your life? Has become an obstruction to even God working through you to impact somebody else's life? You have confidently been appropriating the resurrection power of Jesus over your life and your circumstances. But stop to consider, are you humble? Are you humble on your job? Are you humble when dealing with your spouse? Are you humble when dealing with your friends and your family members? Or are you exalting yourself, promoting yourself, engaging in self-justification? You're degrading yourself, suggesting that you're, 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 you're not as good as. And we cloak that as humility, but it is pride. And I'll, I'll get more into that in part two. You demote yourself. You rely on yourself, self-sufficiency. All of that is being prideful. And we cannot tap into the resurrection power of Christ unless we walk in humility. It will be futile. And if you are tempted for a second, even a second to think, that you may struggle with humility in one aspect of your life. So it's not such a big deal. Guess what? Mm -mm. That's not how it works. 
obedience to God is complete. We cannot compartmentalize to say I'm obedient in this era, but I, I kind of struggling in the other era. So I still expect God to show up. I still expect God to do everything that I'm asking him to do. I still expect my prayers to be powerful. I still expect people to be healed when I pray. I still expect intervention. I still expect preservation. No, it's a complete package. And if humility is an issue or being humble is an issue, then we have some stuff to work on. Let us continue with the life of Jesus. Jesus is the template for us to follow in living a life of humility. Imagine this, Jesus is a part of the Trinity. Jesus is a part of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But yet Jesus was humble enough to take on the form of man, condescend to the level of man and suffer and die for us. Ultimately to restore our relationship with God. And that is important because as I started out by saying the ultimate accomplishment of Jesus' humility is salvation and receiving the power of the Holy Spirit. But what about the journey of Jesus's life? Why was it important for Jesus to live a life of humility? And we're gonna look at Matthew, we're gonna focus on Matthew three this morning, part of Matthew three. And so I'm gonna ask um, someone, Ms. Rifa, can you read for me please? We're gonna read Matthew three, verse 13 to 15 from the New King James Version. Go ahead, please. Thank Starting you. at verse 13. Yes, 13 to 15. John baptizes Jesus. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you are coming to me. But Jesus answered and said to him, permit it to be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed. Let me shift the screen up. Then he allowed him. Thank you. I'm not Thanks. able to see below that. You have to um, scroll that, that's up. Okay. That's okay. That's okay. That's the last sentence. Then he allowed him. Okay. Thank you then so much. Him. Okay. So, so this, the second reason I want to look at for Jesus's humility was that it resulted in the fulfillment of purpose. The first reason releases power. Second reason, fulfillment of purpose. John understood who Jesus was. John felt that given Jesus's position as the son of God, by all standards, Jesus was the one who should be baptizing him, John, not John baptizing Jesus. John recognized that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus had nothing to repent of. He had no reason to be baptized. Jesus also knew who he was. He knew and understood his deity, but he also knew that he had to humble himself for God's purpose to be accomplished. What did Jesus say to John when John said, you're coming to me, I should be coming to you? Jesus said in verse 15, allow it for now. Another version says, permit it to be so now. Jesus recognized that it was divine necessity to borrow the term from Reverend Heron. 
for him to humble himself and be baptized. And what happened after that? In Matthew 3, 16 to 17, it says, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Jesus's humility in being baptized achieved three things. Empowerment of the Holy Spirit that descended on him. He received the affirmation of his father and the baptism launched him into his earthly ministry. The beginning of the fulfillment of Jesus's purpose on earth started from a place of humility. So, so where, where do you fit in that picture? Where do I fit in that picture? When faced with situations where we're challenged to be humble, what is your response? And I'm going to give some examples. Let's say you're on a job and you're carrying the weight of the work. You're more qualified than your supervisor or your manager. And you know that you're more qualified than them, but you are carrying the bulk of the work and they're just skating. What do you do? You can, if you're operating in the flesh, find reasons why you should put that person in their place. Let them know that, listen, you, you, you can't hold a candle to me. We can make a choice. Another example, you're in ministry. You have a gift, an anointing, and the Lord is using you powerfully in that ministry. And you're now sitting under a leader, but you think that it's time for you to launch out on your own. What do you do? You can, if operating in the flesh, decide that you have sat long enough under this person and it's time for you to launch out on your own without God say so. Another example, you're in a job or you're in a business that you feel is not utilizing, fully utilizing your gifts and your educational qualifications, but God says, stay, sit here. What do you do? You can, if operating in the flesh, walk away from that job or from that business God has given you because you feel that it's beneath you. All of these options are available to us. And sadly, oftentimes the choices we make are because of sinful pride. We seek to put somebody in their place. We speak, seek to make our status known. We seek to make decisions that are not aligned with God's purpose because we're impatient. We seek to prove that we're better than where we are or we're better than our circumstances. When you find yourself in that situation or those situations, how would you answer this question? Why did you say what you said? Or why did you do what you did? If we're honest, more often than not, the answer to this would be because I. Because I. When because I factors in the picture, it is the flesh. When because I factors in the picture, it displaces God. When because I factors in the picture, it is being prideful. When sinful pride is present, it delays the fulfillment of God's purpose. My challenge to us today is to follow Jesus' example. As children of God, 
there is divine purpose to be fulfilled in our circumstances. Let us stop trying to shift from where God has placed us because we are prideful. The flesh will feel like it's in the shadow. The flesh feel like it's in the shadow of a boss. The flesh feel like it's in the shadow of a friend. The flesh feels like it's in the shadow of a spouse. The flesh feels like it's in the shadow of a pastor or a bishop or some other spiritual leader. But what we fail to recognize is that when God positions us in the shadow, it is for a reason. Let us not be prideful and step out of the shadow because we want to shine. Shadow is shade. Shadow is shade. And until we are ready for the spotlight, God will keep us in the shadow, in the shade, because he's working on something in us to position us for the fulfillment of his purpose. But that requires humility. So let us choose to be humble. First Peter 5, 6 says, so humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Let us not try and fast track the process. Jesus humbled himself being baptized by a man which accomplished the remissions of sins that he did not and could not commit just for the fulfillment of divine purpose which is for us to receive salvation. Before you speak, act, or even think, before you, you, you give an attitude, be intentional about asking yourself, why am I responding this way? Is my response going to further the fulfillment of God's purpose in this situation? Will God get, get the glory out of my thoughts? Will God, God get the glory out of my words, my actions, or my attitude? If he will not, then stop and rethink your response. After Jesus was baptized, we see where the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. And God said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus's humility pleased his father. And this was the beginning of the preparation for Jesus's ministry. Humility was necessary to launch Jesus into his earthly ministry. Could pride be blocking some of the things that God wants to do in your life? If Jesus was humble, why shouldn't we be? If Jesus was humble, why shouldn't you be humble? Why shouldn't I be humble? So we see humility preceded the start of Jesus's ministry. And we're going to now look at Matthew 4. And in Matthew 4, we're going to see where the devil tempted Jesus. And I'm going to ask Pastor to read this scripture for us. We're looking at Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11, and we're reading from the NIV version. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of, this, of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Thank you, Pastor. Thank you, Sister Tashina. A key observation in verse 1 of Matthew 4 is that Jesus' journey into the wilderness was not accidental. The scripture says Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. Remember, Jesus was fully God. He was as fully God as he was fully man. To allow himself to be led into the wilderness was to submit, to humble himself to the third person of the Trinity. He was led by the Spirit. He humbled himself to the, the Holy Spirit to be led into the wilderness. To allow himself to be tempted by Satan, who is a created being, was in itself an act of humility, all for purpose. The first temptation by Satan was when Jesus was hungry. Satan said, if you are the son of God, turn these stones to bread. If you are the son of God, turn these stones to bread. I say it again. If you are the son of God, turn these stones to bread. That is what Jesus, uh, Satan said to Jesus. So, the physical need for food was real. Jesus' response did not focus on the physical need. Jesus' response was to quote the scriptures, it is written. The purpose set an example. The purpose was for Jesus to set an example to us. There's a physical need, there is hunger, but his response set an example to us as Christians. Our response to temptation must not be based on a desire to satisfy a physical need, but our response to temptation must be based on the word of God. Ephesians 6, 14 to 17 is a well-known scripture that speaks about the spiritual armor. Verse 13 says, put on the full armor of God. Full means everything. Everything listed from verse 14 to 17 is what is available to us in spiritual warfare. Belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, shield of faith, the helmet of salvation. But verse 17 continues, take the sword of the spirit. Have you ever noticed that every, of all the things listed in the armor, the spiritual armor, the sword is the only offensive weapon? 
a sword is the only thing that we can use to cut, stab, clear, whatever. Of all the things in the spiritual armor, the sword is the only offensive weapon. And the word, the, the scripture in verse 17 continues, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So what did Jesus do? Jesus responded to Satan's temptation by wielding the sword, wielding the weapon that is available to us as an example for us to do the same thing. Can you imagine? Jesus humbled himself to the point of being tempted by a created being who was beneath him just to teach us how to respond when we're tempted, just to teach us that we too have access to the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Satan could not have succeeded in his efforts to tempt Jesus because Jesus could not sin, but Jesus humbled himself to set an example for our benefit. Satan sought to capitalize on the physical need for food and thus tempted Jesus to seek immediate gratification, immediate satisfaction of that need. But what else did Jesus say? Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. That achieved the purpose of setting the example to us that the weapon is available to us to resist temptation. I said that before, but it did more than that. Jesus's response is a lesson to us that we will experience physical lack and suffering. So why, why will we experience physical lack and suffering? Why did Jesus respond this way? Why did the devil go after Jesus by looking at a physical need? And what can we learn from Jesus's response? What we can learn from Jesus's response is that even in lack and suffering, we need to trust God's providence. And that is my third point this afternoon. Trust God's providence. Jesus's humility sought to teach us to trust God's providence. God's providence is defined as God's caring provision for his people as he guides them in their journey of faith through life while accomplishing his purpose in them. God's caring provision for his people as he guides them in their journey of faith through life while accomplishing his purpose in them. In response to the temptation to turn stones into bread, Jesus said, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Not only was this a lesson that we should arm ourselves with the word, the sword, as I mentioned earlier, but it's a lesson that we will suffer lack for a greater cause. God's provision is not limited to material, physical things. But his providence, in his providence rather, he will permit suffering to cause us to develop and mature. God caused the children of Israel to suffer hunger before he fed them. And this was to humble them and to prove them. We see that in Deuteronomy 8, verse 2 to 3, and I'll also read verse 5. And it says, Remember how the Lord, your God, led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you 
in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Know then in your hearts that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord God disciplines you. So you may be saying, how is that relevant to us? Jesus quoting this scripture is a reminder to us that God in his providence will determine how we will be nourished. Spiritual food is no less important than physical food. And I dare say it's even more important than physical food. Haggai 1 verse 6 says, you have not planted much, but harvested, you, sorry, you have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. Micah 1.14 says, you will eat, but not be satisfied. Your stomach will still be empty. So saying, so, so sorry, so seeking after the, 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 the pursuit of physical food alone is not enough. And Matthew Henry puts it like this. We may have bread and yet not be nourished if God denies his blessings. We may have bread and yet not be nourished if God's, God denies his blessings. So let us trust God's providence that even in a time of lack and suffering, he knows best how to respond in that situation. And his response in that situation may, not be, may be not to meet that immediate need. But we have to trust his providence that he knows best. Suffering and lack are part of the Christian walk we will experience suffering and lack. And as Reverend Heron said in his message on, on Easter Sunday, suffering, death and resurrection was the blueprint of Jesus's life. And as believers, we too will suffer because of our commitment to Christ. So let me implore you, stop always expecting God to immediately satisfy the physical need or for him to ask him to, or ask him to remove our suffering. But let us get to a place, let us humble ourselves and accept that God knows what is best for us. The devil wants us to believe that afflictions, suffering and lack cannot coexist with a loving God. That's what he wants. He, the, the devil is saying, but if God loves you, why are you suffering? Why are you experiencing lack? Suffering and lack can't can, can coexist with a, with a love in God, but that is a lie. It is in its full time as Christians that we accept that affliction, suffering and lack originate from God's fatherly love. It originates from his fatherly love because he wants to do something in us. But we must trust that God in his providence knows what is best for us and his response is what is best for us even if it is not what we want but to get to that place we have to be humble and trust his providence so so providence and provision are intertwined trusting god's providence means that we must trust his promises concerning his provision when satan tempted Jesus to turn stones into bread. 
it was also an attempt for Jesus to question God's provision. So my next observation is Satan was challenging Jesus to question God's ability to provide for him. And so you may realize by now that I'm focusing on some P's. The first P, the lesson from Jesus's humility, was it accomplished the fulfillment of God's purpose? Sorry, sorry, the, 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 the uh, release of God's power. The second, the fulfillment of God's purpose. The third, it teaches us to trust God's providence. And so my fourth and final point this morning is that Jesus's humility teaches us to trust God's promises concerning his provision. The first thing that Satan did was to tempt Jesus with satisfying a physical need. Listen to this carefully. Satan said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Satan didn't say, pray to your father to turn these stones into bread. He said, you, Jesus, command these stones to be turned to bread. What, what's the difference? The difference is that Satan was saying, don't you see your father has abandoned you? You can't depend on him. So with the power that you have, you turn the stones to bread. Don't even pray to him to turn the stones to bread. You have the power, so you turn the stones to bread. He was tempting Jesus to exercise his authority as the son of God, to show that he was not dependent on God to satisfy this need that he had. In other words, he was saying to Jesus, exalt yourself so that show, show, show that you're self-sufficient. Why are you humbling yourself before your father? No, no, no. You have the power to satisfy this need. So go ahead and do it. But what did Jesus do? Jesus recognized that Satan was trying to get him to distrust his father's care for him and his father's ability to provide for him. Jesus knew who his father was, and so he did not need to prove anything to Satan. Jesus's response is a lesson to us as Christians. And it sets an example for us to pattern. It's a reminder to us that the promises of God concerning our provision are final. But in order for us to experience these promises, we need to be humble. Satan's intent was to sever Jesus's dependence on God. Satan's intent is to sever our dependence on God and cause us to second guess God's promises concerning us. What do I mean? How often do you find yourself in a position of physical lack and giving to the temptation to sin? You're behind on your rent, and so you lie to the landlord. You need money to meet a need, and so you cheat on your taxes. You take cash under the table. You don't declare your full income or you make a claim for something that you shouldn't claim for. You purchase something and you're undercharged, or you may get back too much change, but you walk away because you're thinking about the need that you have that that money can immediately satisfy. You shortchange God on your tithes and your offerings because you want to use the money to meet an immediate need. Or what about making a decision that we know is outside of God's will? We give in to temptation and engage in these sinful acts because we do not trust 
God's promises concerning his provision for us. And that is being prideful. It's pride. We give in to the temptation of the enemy to not trust our all-sufficient God. So we move to the place of self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency is being prideful. We give in to the temptation to be self-reliant, self-sufficient. And sometimes we even call it independent. But all of that is prideful. God and self cannot coexist. Self-sufficient, self-reliant, all of that, none of that can coexist with God. God and self cannot coexist. If self is in the picture, sinful pride has entered the picture and it shows a lack of our trust that God will fulfill his promises concerning provision for us. To quote Matthew Henry, he says, it is better to live poorly upon the fruits of God's goodness than to live plentifully upon the products of our sin. It is better to live poorly upon the fruits of God's goodness than to live plentifully upon the products of our sin. We must remember that we belong to God and as children of God, he's going to take care of us. That is his promise to us. Philippians 4.19, and God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Matthew 6.26 says, we are worth far more than birds. We know the scripture well. We're worth far more than the birds of the air. And yet we can't trust God's promises concerning his provision for us when God provides for the birds of the air. Of, of, of the air. That don't, that, that, that's all right. That's all right. Why are we worried what we will eat or what we'll drink or what we'll wear when we know our Heavenly Father can meet all of these needs? Matthew 7, 11 says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? God's word is replete with promises concerning his provision for us. So why do we become prideful? and yield to the temptation of being self-sufficient because we are impatient and so we step outside of God's will. Let us humble ourselves to experience the promises and the provision of God. Lack presents not only a perfect opportunity to walk in humility, but it presents an opportunity for us to praise God in the midst of the lack. When we praise God and remain humble, it confounds the enemy. It confuses Satan. Habakkuk 3, 17 to 19 says, Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Let, let us rejoice, Naman. Let, let us stop allowing Satan to tempt us to the point of being prideful because we do not trust God's promises concerning his provision for us. Can we commit, as I close, I ask this question, can we commit to walk in, in humility? Jesus, we see, set the perfect example for us. Him condescending to become man 
was humbling himself. He humbled himself to be baptized by John. He humbled himself to be led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted. It teaches us humility. It teaches us that humility will result in the fulfillment of God's promise. It teaches us that humility will result in us trusting God's providence. Jesus's humility teaches us to trust God's promises concerning his provision for us. But guess what? It doesn't end there. And this is where I'm gonna pick up in part two next week. One of the issues with us as Christians, one of the things that we struggle with the most in being humble is we do not fully grasp our position in God. Each temptation of the devil, every single one started, if you are the son of God, Satan wanted Jesus to question his identity. And that's no different for us, but Jesus was confident in who he was. And his confidence in who he was is a lesson to us that humility comes when we know our position in God, when we know our identity in God. And so part two of this message will pick up on the position, what our position in God is. And knowing our identity, knowing our position in God is the key to walk in a life of humility. Then very importantly, at the end of part two next week, I will close with how do we walk in humility? I've covered a lot of things today and I will also look at position next week. But the rubber meets the road because I know pastor going to ask me, so how we walk in humility? So make sure I say it for now, come in on social glass. How, how, so how would I get to all of this? How we do it? How do we practically execute and so I will address that in the message next week in part two. But you may be listening to us now. You may have listened to this message or you're listening to the recorded version. And you've heard much about this Jesus that I talk about. There's an opportunity for you to come to know this Jesus if you do not know him. You, there's an opportunity for you to come to know this Jesus who condescended to the level of man, humbled himself to take on the form of man, to afford you the gift of salvation. Will you come to know him? Something I have said while you listened, maybe pulling, tugging at something in your heart and there may be a desire in you to walk this journey of humility that I talk about. No man comes to the father unless the spirit draws him. So it is the Holy Spirit in you, that the Holy Spirit that is drawing you the Holy Spirit in you that is prompting you to want to know this Jesus that I talk about. The ability to overcome the temptation to be prideful is only available to you through the power of the Holy Spirit that I spoke about. And the power of the Holy Spirit is only available to you if you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So I'm extending an invitation to you to surrender to him. And, and if you, if that is you this morning, this evening, this afternoon, whenever it is that you may be listening to this message, I invite you to say this prayer with me. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I ask for your forgiveness. 
I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I turn from my sins and invite you to come into my heart and my life. I want to trust and follow you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke 15 verse 7 says, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do, do not need to repent. We are rejoicing with you today. Heaven is celebrating with you today. So I say, welcome to the family of God. And we would love to hear from you here at New Life Horizon Church. So give us a call now. Send us a WhatsApp, 469-333-0397. Or you can even email us and we will respond, newhorizonmin at gmail.com. So that's 469-333-0397. Or email us at newhorizonmin at gmail.com. God bless you. Over